Uh, I want to ask you this question. It's a serious question. How great, how great do you think Jesus is? Seems like a weird question to ask Christians, doesn't it? How beautiful, how wonderful is Jesus? With what authority do you think he has? One of the great Russian writers, Dostoevsky, is a famous Christian. He famously wrote um, his faith into his books. And he once wrote in a letter to his niece, Sofia Alexandrovna, he wrote this, All writers, not ours alone, but foreigners also, who have sought to represent absolute beauty, were unequal to the task. For it is an infinitely difficult one. The beautiful is the ideal. But ideals with us, as in civilised Europe, have long been wavering. There is in the world only one figure of absolute beauty, Christ. That infinitely lovely figure is, as a matter of course, an infinite marvel. The goal of the Christian life, I think, as Dostoevsky realised, is to know the beauty of Christ deep in your gut and that will drive the rest of your life to know that he is superior and the wonderful ruler of the universe and this matters because the problem for us as Christians is we tend to make Jesus in our own image we reduce him to some kind of a stereotype uh, of uh, a messiah meeting our needs like a magic genie or like a therapist who gives us um, what we need when we need it. Um, we sometimes make him into like a dreadlocked hippie protester, if that's your thing. Maybe some, for some of us he's, a, he's a, an Anglo-Saxon preacher <laughs> in a suit. In none of those things, he is the son of God. And I've been thinking a lot lately about um, a shift going on in society. Uh, for the past half century or so, we've understood our Western society as what you call relativistic, um, where relativism is the doctrine that knowledge, truth and morality all exist um, in relation to culture, society or even a historical context. So in a relativistic society, points of view have no absolute truth or validity within themselves but rather only relative subjective value. So in a relativistic society, each person can have their own views and everyone's okay with that and you can, you can hold your own views and what's okay for you is okay for you, what's okay for me is okay for me. And as Christians, generally speaking, in a relativistic society, you know, you can just get on with things and people won't get in your way. But there's been some discussion going on in scholarship, but also in the, in the media, about an obser- observation that society, Western society is becoming absolutist again. Where absolute, in an absolutist society is one which holds absolute principles of politics, philosophy, theology, and those kind of things. The New York Times writer David Brooks, who um, is really good to read or listen, you can get a podcast of him talking on the PBS NewsHour, um, he's writing for some, been writing for some time now about the emergence of shame culture in universities. Um, if you don't hold the right views, you will be shut down, you'll be put to shame. And he points out 
apart from the phenomena of shaming, that there must be so these, these absolutes that are forming in university culture. And he's saying, where have those absolutes come from? Some sort of moral system is forming into place, he says. Some new criteria exists, which people use to define correct and incorrect action. There was an article that Angus McClay sent me from The Atlantic called The Death of Moral Relativism. Um, two weeks ago it came out, and Jonathan Merritt said this. This system is not a reversion to the values that conservatives may wish for. He's talking about the context of American politics. America's new moral code is much different than it was prior to the Cultural Revolution of the 60s and 70s. Instead of being centred on gender roles, family values, respect for institutions and religious piety, it orbits around values like tolerance and inclusion. This new code has created a paradoxical moment in which all is tolerated except the intolerant and all included except the exclusive. Now, I'm saying all this because I think what's going to happen to us as Christians in this Western culture is we're going to come to a point where it's not just going to be okay for us to sail along and believe what we want to believe, but that um, we're going to find ourselves outside of that absolutist doctrine uh, where we won't be tolerated um, in our culture holding the views that we hold. And this is going to be different. This is going to be a new time for us in the West and we're going to have to make a decision, do we believe in Jesus or not? I mean, we have to be clear about that, as clear as we can be. Last week, um, when Rob talked, he talked about how the Son of God is superior to the prophets. And this next passage that we're going to look at this morning goes on and says the Son of God is superior to the angels. And we're going to venture into some important theology about how superior he is and the place of angels. And you're going to think to yourself, this is a bit abstract, isn't it? It's a bit weird, talking about angels. Um, but my prayer is that as we think about what we believe in this context of shifting cultures, it's going to sink into our hearts, that we'll have wonderment for the gospel, wonderment for who Jesus is. We'll look at him and go, wow, that's amazing. And there's four arguments presented in this passage, and I want, to look, want us to look at it. So you might want to look at your passage, because some of it's a bit technical. So the first idea that the writer of the Hebrews says is the Son, the Son of God, is superior because of his relationship to the Father, to God the Father. Now, over the road from my office is um, a cafe I've mentioned probably a few times over the years, Maurizio's Cafe. He's just hanging on by the skin of his teeth, paying the bills. <laughs> And I've got to know Maurizio, I go over there and we talk. He's an Italian Jehovah's Witness. He converted when he was in Australia, I think through his wife. And he likes to talk to me about what's going on uh, in life and in his, in his cafe. And I talk to him about what's going on at Mary Creek Anglican. And we're just two blokes talking about our jobs, you know. How you going with the coffee? But then when we get to talk about faith, there's always a blocker that comes up. And it's not a blocker that causes tension, it's just that we both know we're on a different page. And the blocker is this, that he doesn't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And to me, that's a weird thing. And for him, it's weird for him to think that I think that he is the Son of God. Because Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus lived and died, uh, do believe that Jesus lived and died, but they don't believe that everything he claims is true about himself. They do not believe that he is God, but that he's been created by God. He's still very important, but he's not in essence God. 
And actually, they believe that he's a kind of a manifestation of the archangel Gabriel. And while they believe Jesus died and paid a ransom for the sins of humanity in a kind of a way, they don't believe that he rose again bodily, but spiritually and materialised a new body so, so that he could appear before his disciples. Now, I don't expect there to be many Jehovah's Witnesses in the room today. I don't expect that. It could be, but I don't expect that. I don't expect many of you to know many Jehovah's Witnesses because he's the only one that I know. I think they're a pretty small religious group. But this question of whether or not Jesus is the Son of God is a fundamental question to Christian faith. Do you actually believe that? Because I, I, I would be pretty sure that there'd be people here who are not sure. Well, to people who say that Jesus is just the Archangel Gabriel, you know, manifest as a sort of a spiritual being, the writer of the Hebrews actually has an answer. He says in verse 5, For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I've become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. This is a rhetorical question. It's a good question. When has God ever related to an angel in a father-son relationship? Answer, never. He has never called, but he has called Jesus Christ son. And to prove his point, the writer of the Hebrews starts quoting Psalms. And this is a kind of a method that the rabbis used to use to prove their point. They, they quote a series of Bible texts, one after the other. Uh, it was called chain quotations. You string together a series of Bible, Bible verses and you make a point. And remember that the book of Hebrews is probably a series of sermons, so this is probably a preacher's tool here. And the first quote comes from Psalm 2, um, verse 7b and 9. We, we actually read Psalm 2 at the start of the service. You are my son, today I've become your father. And just to make a side point, he's actually quoting from the Greek translation of the, of the Jewish scriptures, the Septuagint. Uh, so which it has a slightly different wording, but still the Bible. These words were used by King David um, from, in Psalm 2 originally, used by King David to show his confidence in God in the face of opposition. But as with many of the words ascribed to David, early Christians applied those words, they saw them fulfilled in Jesus. They saw his victory over sin and evil and death uh, as the fulfilment of these kind of words that are found in Psalm 2. When the early Christians faced the persecution from the Roman Empire, they would read Psalm 2 and they would have confidence in Jesus. They would have confidence in what the Gospel says, that, that despite the, the violence that they were experiencing, that Jesus is Lord so they should not be discouraged. Jesus is God's son. Remember his baptism when the prophetic words from Psalm 2 were fulfilled. There's Jesus standing in, in the river with, with um, John the Baptist and the voice of God comes from heaven saying, you are my son. No angels ever had this kind of treatment. No angels had the voice of heaven saying, you are my son. Jesus is more important than the angels. The other quote um, in, in verse 5, there's two quotes there, comes from 2 Samuel 7 verse 14, where the prophet Nathan responds to David, David's desire to build a temple for God. And he says, it's actually going to be one of your descendants, the one who comes after you, 
um, that's going to build this temple. And about that descendant of David, uh, God says, I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, the later Old Testament prophets looked forward to a greater son of David who would come one day in whom all the promises made to David and his descendants would be fully realised. Sure, King Solomon did build the temple, but, there were, but he wasn't a real son of God, capital S, because he was a failure in the end as a king. He was only a shadow of the true son of God, the one who was the temple himself, Jesus Christ. And about 900 years after Solomon, in the immediate years before the birth of Christ, there are many texts not included in the Bible, such as the Psalms of Solomon, the, 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 the scriptures found in the, 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 the texts found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, the Qumran texts, that show us that Jewish scholars were anticipating that this Messiah would, would be soon born and this Messiah would be a son of God, that son of God, the true son of God. So this idea that the Messiah would be the son of God wasn't just coming out of nowhere when Jesus was born. It was part of Jewish thinking. And we have to remember that the original readers or listeners to the, 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 letter, the book of Hebrews were uh, Greek Jewish Christians. So they understood all this stuff. So these quotes serve to show that Jesus is superior because of his relationship to God. He is the son of God. He is a person of the Trinity. Let me remind you what we say in the Nicene Creed. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things are made. The second idea I want to draw attention to in the passage is that angels have an important role, but... And their position in ministry is important, but not as important as the Son of God. Now, in our Christian biblical view of the universe, we believe in angels. Now, I, when I talk to you guys, I don't hear you mention that very often, and I'm not going to rebuke you for that. There are some churches and some, you know, ends of the church spectrum that some people really think about it a lot, you know, and it's not right or wrong to put too much or too little emphasis on angels. But I do want to remind us of what the Bible actually says because my first understanding of angels came from uh, the 1980s series Highway to Heaven. Did anyone see that show? Anyway. Is it, you know, it's this idea, Highway to Heaven, there was a kind of a, an American guy who walks around who's actually an angel helping people. Now, I've never seen angels. I know people who said that they have seen angels. I know Christians who say they think that they might have seen angels. Like, and not necessarily a white figure with wings, but, you know, I know people who say, say that they've had encounters with people that seem like they're talking to an angel. And the Bible actually says, even the book of Hebrews says, you will have entertained angels at times. You know, this is Hebrews 13, verse 2. I'll read it. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by... So doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. So it's quite possible that you've had an encounter with angels and not realised it. For me, angels are, are an amazing thing because it's another indication that God loves us. They are part of his created universe. Let, let me tell you some things about what the Bible says. What are angels? They're a supernatural, heavenly being, um, a little higher in dignity than human beings. 
The creation by God occurred before the creation of man and woman. They are spirits, and this passage actually says that, that we're reading today. They are distinct from human beings, although they sometimes can look like human beings. They don't marry or die. Uh, You can see Jesus' words in Luke 20 about that. There's a vast multitude of them. They have different ranks and endowments. Um, Michael is called an archangel in scripture. He's the only actual archangel mentioned in scripture. They are good, there are good and evil angels, and the evil angels we call demons, and they are highly organized. And there's a loose story arc in the Bible, actually, about angels. It sort of is threaded through that we often overlook, um, that angels were created holy, but some fell into sin uh, before Satan tempted Eve. And their fall was due to a deliberate rebellion against God, which resulted in their loss of holiness. They became corrupt and were um, confirmed in evil. And some of these evil angels are in hell until the day of judgment, and others are left free to oppose the work of God for a time. Now, I could tell you more about the evil angels, but actually I think what the writer of the Hebrews is talking about is the good angels here. He's making comparison between the Son of God and the good angels, the angels that we might be tempted to worship, perhaps. Good angels stand in the presence of God and worship him, it says in Matthew 18, verse 10, Revelation 5, verse 11. They assist, they protect, and they deliver God's people. They guided Philip to go into the desert, and they encouraged Paul in Corinth. Sometimes they interpret God's will to people. Sometimes they carried out God's will towards individuals and nations. It says in Daniel 10, an amazing passage in Daniel 10, the affairs of the nations are guided by angels. And even in, in 2 Kings 19 and Acts 12, God uses angels to punish his enemies. In the life of Jesus, angels were very important. They appeared to Mary, Joseph and the shepherds. They ministered to Jesus after he was tempted in the desert. An angel strengthened Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. An angel rolled the stone away from the tomb. And when Jesus ascended to heaven... There's a bunch of angels hanging around, going up there with him. So angels are really, really important, but not as important as Jesus. The issue, uh, we, some people say perhaps the, the people in the church that this writer was writing to were tempted to worship angels, but there's actually not a lot of evidence of that. Perhaps more likely he's just creating an argument from lesser to greater Look how good the angels are. The son of God's even better. So anyway, he goes on and has a whole lot more quotes from the Psalms to build this case that the son of God is better than the angels. Verse 6, the son of God is actually worshipped by angels. So son of God must be better. Verse 7, quoting Psalm 104, says the angels, while important in the administration of the affairs of the universe, are nevertheless inferior to the Son. They're servants of God. So considering everything I've said, this is a big statement about the Son of God. So we've had two arguments so far. The Son is superior because of his unique relationship to God, and angels have an important role, but not as important as the Son of God. And thirdly, he says, the Son is eternal. Verse 8. But about the Son, he says... Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. So the son, we see, sits on a throne, has a scepter, has a kingdom. He has authority. God promised David that his kingdom would never end. And this is the fulfillment of that promise. All things created, even the angels, are subject to time 
and tide, change and decay, but the throne of God's Son endures forever. I'm not a physicist, but um, I know because everyone knows. The second law of thermodynamics states that the universe tends towards high entropy. So sooner or later, your hair will go grey and fall out. Your car's engine will seize up. The earth will overheat and overpopulate. Thousands of species of animals will eventually become extinct. The oceans will be fished out. If an asteroid doesn't hit the earth one day, the sun will eventually burn out anyway. But Jesus' kingdom goes on. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And just to remind you here, this is just, we might overlook this. This is God talking to Jesus, calling him God. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. We think this is probably the most explicit statement in the whole Bible that Jesus is God. The next quote in verses 10 to 12 comes from Psalm 102, verse 25 to 27. It is affirming what was said in the opening verses of the letter, that just as the universe was created um, through the Son of God and is sustained by the Son of God, so too will the Son of God outlive the universe. Let me read it to you. Verse 10. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a, they will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. Did you know astronomers believe that there are 10 billion galaxies in the universe? And each galaxy has an average of 100 billion stars, which means there are roughly 1 billion trillion stars in the universe. Just sit with that for a moment. 1 billion trillion stars. And these verses are saying that Jesus is so powerful that, that there will come a day when he will reach out his hand over the universe and pick up the one billion trillion stars, all the supernovas and the quasars and the black holes and the dark matter. He'll roll them up like the way you roll up your jacket when you sit down to sit at the dinner table. They'll all be gone, but he will last forever. This is the Son of God. As John writes in the opening of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The Son of God is eternal. These words from Psalm 102 were originally meant or directed to God, and now they're directed to the Son of God. So we've had three arguments so far. The Son is superior because of his relationship to God. Angels have an important role, but their position and ministry is inferior to the Son, and the Son is eternal. And the last point that he makes is that the Son sits at the right hand of God, and no angel gets to sit there. Look at verse 13. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is taken from Psalm 110, and it clinches the argument. It reminds them that the Son of God sits at the right hand of the Father. Nobody else can sit there. And as verse 14 reminds us as well, the greatest and the least angel, they're all servants of God anyway. They are ministering spirits and not to be compared with the Son. In fact, their job is to serve those special people who are heirs of the salvation given by God. 
That's us. Now, at the start, I talked about the importance of being clear about Jesus as our supreme ruler. And we have to do this as we move more and more into an age of absolutism. You can't be more clear than what is written in the book of Hebrews. Let me prepare you to make a stand for trusting in Jesus. This will be increasingly unpopular. You'll be pressured to change your views. Some people will scorn you. But when that day comes, put your trust in Jesus, the Son of God, the one who the angels worship, the one who God calls Son, the one who is in complete control over the universe, the only one who is truly eternal. 